Welcome back to Financial Therapy. It's not just about the money. I'm personal financial planner, columnist, and financial therapist, Rick Kaler. Research tells us that 90% of all financial decisions are made emotionally, not logically. For nearly four decades, I've been helping people make better money decisions. So what makes my financial worldview different from most financial experts? I blend the nuts and bolts of financial advice with the emotions that drive making them. Good money decisions are not just about the money. So let's get started with today's episode. Okay, welcome back. And I'm with uh, Deb Kaplan, co-author of the book, Coupleship Inc. And in this particular session, we would like to uh, talk a little bit or go into a little bit more depth on this idea of Coupleship Inc., that there is a business, there's a merger that happens when we're in partnership with another person. And we're talking mostly from a romantic uh, partnership, but this would be true in any any partnership. This is true in in most partnerships, and it doesn't sound very sexy. And to the couple who are coming together, two individuals who are forming a relationship, the last thing they're probably thinking is, why talk about something very unromantic? I know, what a buzzkill, right? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, so it's so very logical. It's so very logical. And um, romance and attraction isn't about logic. No, it's about heart and it's about bonding and attachment. And yet at some point, the very real conversations that root a relationship, any lasting healthy relationship that root it in reality have to include what this ultimate couple or coupleship means and what do we want it to look like? How do we want to build it? I'm guessing that there's probably fear uh, as maybe some couples are listening to us right now, like, oh my God, I don't want to have a talk about money tonight with my significant other because that could ruin things. That could split us up. Or how (laughs) boring would they think I am if I were to bring this up or how unromantic the other, my partner, my potential spouse think I am. Yeah. Can, can this just go away? <laughs> this money stuff? And Maybe. I'm too tired. I want to go to sleep. I don't want to talk about this. Or can we talk about it another time? Okay. So here's the, here's the idea between the, the, the coupleship ink. We touched on it a little bit in the last uh, podcast, but the idea, and, and it comes from, um, there's some IFS, internal family systems theory here. And internal family systems, it comes from family systems therapy, which says there's no black sheep in the family. There's no identified patient in a family. You may have the, the, the child that's on drugs or doing terrible in school that's acting out. But to heal that person, we got to heal the whole organization. Right. Like everybody no has their role, right? right? And no one exists in a vacuum. It, a, an individual exists within the context of the whole system that operates in concert one way or another. So this was turned inside out by Dick Schwartz. Uh, and he'll say his clients taught him this. He didn't come up with it. That we apply this inwardly, that there's no bad part 
of ourselves. That every, the part of me that wants to spend and the part of me that wants to save both have good intentions. Uh, there, there's not bad parts. It's the whole system that needs to be addressed, the alliances, etc. So that's basically what internal family systems is about. So it's the idea we have this whole family inside. We have many parts. Um, the you know you can have 30, 60, 90 different parts. There's no. Oh, you're getting. Oh my God, you're going to scare people. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of parts. I got a lot of parts. So um, the the idea here is that the part, all these parts of ourselves are all arranged when it comes to financial things. And, and I so, want to add something here. Yeah. That, uh, when we grow up and our little child, inner child becomes the adult that we are, we often think, well, that part of me, the, the kid part of me, or the little one part of me, who experienced different things or who was in the family isn't here now. <laughs> and it's important for people who are listening to recognize that that little one didn't run off and join the circus, as I say, and become someone else. They're you all grown up. And I know that sounds very uh, obvious, maybe, like as in, why would you even have to clarify that, Deb? But I do clarify it for many people. And I, I'm saying it here because Many listeners may think, well, that was 25, 50 years ago, 40 years ago. Uh, you know, that little one's long gone, but they're not. And they're a part of you. All the parts of us didn't go away. They're all inside. So in the book, we, we talk about, and I, um, um, I won't read it uh, exactly, but it, it's the idea we all have these inner companies. When we come together, we're doing a merger, like a business merger. Yeah, like two, two organizations come together, that come right? together, two organizations that come together. And if there hasn't been a lot of, uh, of um, awareness brought to these internal companies of ours, to your point, Deb, many, many of these employees are two-year-olds, three-year-olds, five-year-olds, six-year-olds. They're, they're stuck in these roles and timeframes. Yeah. 13, the 15-year-old, the adolescent. Talk about how every company needs a CEO that's an adult. Mm -hmm. And in many cases, the CEO, the adult has been kicked out of the room by all the kids who are running the company. Yeah. And so this is kind of the, the visualization that we bring to these two companies that we may be merging is it can be a conflation of a few adults and usually a lot of kids. A lot of kids of various ages. You know, I have couples that sit in my office and they may be in the midst of a conversation or, or an argument. And it's actually very interesting and quite revealing to, to see and observe, witness the couple argue. And at times, one of the coupleship will say to the other, how old are you? As almost as if it's a uh, an insult. However, they don't realize that they've actually pointed out a very crucial piece of information that the adult they're in a conversation with or in an argument with may not be the adult self in that moment. And this uh, goes back to the idea that um, addictions, a lot of our money behaviors that we'll talk about in uh, future podcasts come from trauma. They come from a wounding that we go through that 
isn't resolved. Would that be close to being clinically correct? Yeah, very close, very close. That an experience may not be labeled as abusive, which doesn't have to be abuse, but it can be experienced as traumatic. That something to you, Rick, may, you know, a conversation or an argument between two people that for you becomes a trauma may not be for somebody else. And I think that's really important to bring out because the first time I heard the word trauma, I I always associate it with what I now call big T trauma, like a death. um, An accident. Accident, terrible sickness. Yeah. Some off event. I don't have any trauma in my life. There's no trauma. And as I've learned about, to your point, it could be traumatic. Um, if, if Let's just say you're two or three years old, let's say three, and you decide that penny on the ground looks really good. I wonder what it tastes like. And you put it in your mouth and you're chewing it. Mom's witnessing this from maybe about 10 feet away. So yeah, the mom runs over and it's screaming, take that penny out of your mouth. It's going to kill doing? you. What are you doing? Reaches into your mouth, grabs it out. Now, kids don't have any way of putting this into context. Correct. And the message often is, I did something terribly bad. Mm-hmm. I am really messed up. Uh, whatever this thing, this piece of metal is called money, I want nothing to do with it. And in, tr- in, in, um, implicitly, because children don't learn cognitively, they learn implicitly, they're attuned to the mother and say, I made the mother or this in this moment, this mother very upset. She's yeah. very upset with me. Yep. It was my fault. Right. I did something wrong or, or as the child may think I did something bad. Right. The, the thought implicitly. From the mom's point of view, it, it makes perfect sense. Uh, this was a threat to the child. The child could have swallowed this. It was dirty. Uh, she was. Co- it was all about her concern about the child. Mm-hmm. But that is not what is received. And that's one reason we haven't talked about money scripts yet. But I tell parents, you cannot control the beliefs that your kids are going to grow up with about money. Yeah. Because they could be completely opposite of anything you intended them to believe. Right. We don't have control over how we experience life. And how our children experience life through their their lens, their perspective. So from that event, in a IFS perspective, the system says, wow, we are not going to feel this pain ever again. And there's parts of us that become uh, take on protective roles to make sure, uh, stay away from money. Money is dirty. They come up with these beliefs about money. Um And unless that event is consciously visited at some time in adulthood, those beliefs from from that long forgotten uh, incident could control an uh, inappropriately large amount of money decisions. Yes. And it just seems silly as when I think about that from my adult mind, but- uh, It becomes encoded into our nervous system. Let's go back to the example you used about a couple that may argue in your office that you're over in the corner under a desk because you're not afraid of the couple. You're afraid of your past lived experience with a couple or parents in conflict. 
And so fast forward to today or in that time, when a couple argues, it's not the couple that's arguing, it's for you in that moment who was doing the original arguing. Right, right. So these are things that uh, we need to work through and why we say parts of ourselves can be frozen in time. Um, I can't tell you how many clients I've worked with that can't save and they're not in debt, but they don't have any savings. They don't have any money. They spend everything. When it hits a checkbook, everything goes up. And I I think we may talk about this in the book. I'm not sure. Um, But in all of three cases I can uh, think about, uh, it's tied back to their money kept disappearing routinely as kids. Because mm-hmm. the parents were taking it. Mm-hmm. Or the parents needed it to help pay the bills. Exactly. Or in one case, to help uh, bail uh, the, the sibling out of jail. Mm-hmm. Or I, a family in which there is alcoholism or secret keeping, or there is debt due to overspending by a parent or others in the family will get much we'll really dive into some behaviors at a different time, but how our family of origin shapes us does not again, become somebody else. That's just us. And the part of us that experiences that. And the other part of us in the IFS languaging, for example, that becomes an advocate or a protector for that exiled, that pain that we don't want to feel ever again. And in this case, the pain is, opening up your piggy bank or wherever the money is and it's gone. Mm-hmm. And there's this huge pain, perhaps a, a, a feeling of being violated, mm-hmm. Betrayed. anger. Betrayed. And okay, we're, this isn't going to ever happen again. If we get money, we're going to spend it so we can enjoy it. Because if we keep it in a checking account or savings, it's going to disappear. And, and I don't trust that it will be there exactly. when I go back to it. Exactly. And I know in all three clients that I'm thinking of that where we went back and and explored this and found this out. Every one of them is saving money between two thousand seven thousand a month. Interesting, interesting. <laughs> um, and, and the many couples or individuals that I see, because whether they're married, I may see them as an individual, or whether they're in a relationship, and the an inverse is true: that money is um, money is to be saved. But if I spend money, then I feel safe, but I also need to save my, if I spend money, I feel safe, right? Because that's that script, that's belief. But the saving part is at odds with the spending part. And that internal conflict of what I should do or what I want to do versus what I'm compelled to do. And there is that inner conflict that happens very often within ourselves that then bumps up against our partner's desire. So we may be in that part of us that wants to save where our partner is like, let's go on vacation. And we're grappling within ourselves, but now we're also grappling with our partner's needs of what they want and mayhem ensues. So that's the merging of these ah. two belief systems, these two companies. These two organizations. Exactly. And uh, so it can get pretty complex. Yeah. And it sounds more complex than it is because this is what happens every day in relationships. But it's actually once a individual or a couple really sits down and begins to understand what's going on for them, and they can see it clearly in themselves and in their partner, it really just 
becomes an easier process. Exactly. And so that's where we get into this idea of, of money scripts, which we've been talking about the beliefs that parts of us have around money. Mm-hmm. And um, we term that uh, money scripts um, back in the work that I did with uh, Klontz's. So it's something we, we believe to be true about money. And every money script is true in the right circumstance. Every money script is false in the right circumstance. Now, it's really hard, the deeper... Well, that sounds confusing. It's true and false? It's true and false. It depends on the circumstance. So it's all in context. It's all contextual, 100% contextual. Like one of my big money scripts is you got to work hard for money. Well, if you work hard and money comes in, that's true. Correct. What happens if you don't work hard and the money comes in? Then what happens? Then you you have, well, what do we call that? A cognitive dissonance? You're going, (laughs) yes. Something's (laughs) wrong. That cognitive dissonance means I'm fighting with myself. I'm in conflict with myself. Exactly. That this shouldn't be happening. I mean, some of you are listening. Oh, hey, (laughs) I'd like that. Well, uh, this happens to a lot of people, a lot of couples. And it is so, uh, there can be huge amount of guilt. I'm not working and this money's coming in. I don't deserve this. Something's wrong. I've got to get back to what is normal. Right. Because I have to earn money. That's another skit. I had a a couple that inherited $5 million once, and they came in. They were depressed. What's wrong with this? Our friends tell us we should be happy. We had no idea we were going to inherit $5 million. And we did some work around money scripts. We found out in their top five money scripts were money scripts that money that isn't earned isn't worth having. Mm Mm-hmm. And this is why some studies show 40-50% of people that inherit a lot of wealth uh, have gone through that wealth in five years because we get back to what's normal, what's familiar. Is that referred to as the sudden wealth syndrome? I Let's refer to it as the sudden wealth syndrome. That sounds pretty good to me. <laughs> <laughs> and I know that to the listener who says, I wouldn't mind inheriting $5 million, that, you know, try that problem on me. I'd love that syndrome. And I recognize that for the majority of us who don't have $5 million, that that wouldn't be a bad deal. But the person who struggles with the guilt of having that money and not having earned it, that pain is real for them. That's huge. It's as real for them as another individual whose belief is I have to earn the money or I have to spend this money because I don't trust that the money will be there. And And, uh, an employee. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I had an employee once when the lottery it was three hundred thousand, so not a lot by lottery standards. And a year in, later, in today and in, in this day and age, it's not a lot by lottery standards. And that's a lot of this money. This probably happened long enough ago. Let's just say it's five hundred thousand in today's mm-hmm. dollars. And uh, within a year, she's saying, "I wish I had never won that money. It has caused so many problems and so much pain." in my relationship, in my family. That's so unfortunate. Really unfortunate. Yeah. So most of us have 50 to 200 money scripts that operate 24-7, round the clock. Whether whether they're aware of it or not. And and they're not aware of them. Yeah. So that's part of uh, doing this individual work, which we have uh, uh, this in the book of what are my main money scripts? What 
are the categories? Which categories of money scripts do I fall in? And this can really start helping bring awareness to the coupleship. Uh, you have one whose money scripts are mostly money is evil, money is bad. I don't want to do money. Let's get away from money and let's not even talk about money because money is pain. Mm-hmm. And maybe another part of the um, uh, partner who's money vigilant, who says, you don't spend money, you save money, you know, every dime that's coming in, debt is bad, um, and you got to accumulate as much as you can. Right. Save, and it's important to save and not spend. Exactly. And then there, there's, as long as we're there, there's two other categories, money worship, that money will solve all my problems, the more money, the better. And then there's money status. And both of those have a very strong crossover to wealth obsession, that my net worth is my self-worth. Yep, totally. And that also, the kind of nuance of it, that no matter how much I have, it's still not enough because there is not enough. I'm not enough. Therefore, there is not enough. And it gets the skewing of who I am versus what I make and what I'm my net worth versus my what it should not be related to, but becomes my self-worth. And in money status, it's all about connection. Yeah. If I have a certain status, if I have a certain thing that I own or belong to certain things, um, I will be important. So there's self-esteem issues Mm -hmm. in there and people will like me, Mm -hmm. which is our base desire for belonging and connection. Right. And that becomes really tied up and unfortunately too fused with money. And we, t- we the, the book, of course, is framed along parts and IFS. Uh, I'm a certified EMDR clinician, uh, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And that's a beautiful modality of treatment to help unfuse. And I don't want to use uncouple because it's going to be too confusing <laughs> as we talk about couple shipping, but that the ways in which our life experience and traumas or positive events you know, I have fun when I spend money and I forever spend money because I'm always wanting to have fun and I'm going to go broke if I keep spending money. That's very real for many people. But EMDR helps really unfuse, defuse and uncouple the negative event or events from something that is getting triggered in the here and now. And it's another wonderful modality to bear in mind for couples who are wanting to do individual work within their own journey to help their relationship. I think that's a, a really good uh, point is the necessity for a core couple ship for each partner to do their own work. Um, because it's not about fixing right. the other partner. It's about most importantly, doing your own work. Yeah. Thank you for adding that because that was important to both of us to make sure we really communicated that. In the and uh, there's a lot in the book that talks and probably at some times in the book, you're going to say, I thought this was a book written to couples. <clears throat> and it is. And I think the greatest chance of healing a coupleship financially is when each couple takes responsibility for their part of the conflict. I, I love it. A psychologist once told me, we're all 100% responsible for our 50% of the coupleship. Oh, what a great expression. <laughs> yeah. Wait, say it again. We're all a couple, people that are, are in coupleships. We are 100% responsible for our 50% of the partnership. Isn't that awesome? What a great, great saying. I like that. Yeah. There, there's nobody that is the problem. And if you're in a 
a coupleship, which you can be, I mean, this is not unusual, where you're doing work on yourself, you're really wanting to find uh, uh, greater emotional and financial well-being, and your partner isn't coming along. Yeah, I'm sure there are listeners. I'm sure there are listeners saying, what do we do? And I think what's important is uh, to remember that as long as we work on ourselves, we change the dynamic automatically. That's not to say that the coupleship itself will heal magically. There's no magic button. There's no magic wand. But that the nature of change within one individual automatically changes the dynamic in the relationship. And I really remind couples who are doing their work to remember that notion, because even though we may future trip and say, well, nothing's going to change and my partner's never going to change. Well, we don't know that. And as long as we change, our perspective may also change. And that's an important point to note. Yep. Yeah, the, the dyna- dynamics change, like you said, even though one of us changed because now we're showing up differently. Correct. Yeah. So, well, Deb, we can go on and on and we will. And I look forward to it when we do. Um, I think next time we may be talking about uh, these behaviors. I think that's a great topic to delve into. Um, and if you have the book, you can get in and take this money script uh, inventory that we talked about. I think it's on page 28. Mm-hmm. But then money scripts lead to money behaviors. Oh, that's so much fun. We got a whole bunch of chapters on money behaviors. We've got some good stuff to delve into. So. We will delve into that uh, next time. So thank you for listening. Thank you, Deb. And uh, with you, Rick. We'll talk next time. Thanks for joining me, Rick Kaler, for another episode of Financial Therapy. It's not just about the money. This is where I combine the nuts and bolts of financial advice with the emotions that drive making them. Remember, every financial behavior whether it appears illogical to you or others, makes perfect sense when we understand the underlying beliefs, feelings, and thoughts. Sign up for my weekly blog at financialawakenings.com. I hope you'll join me again for our next episode.